0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 15. Episode 12 on how traditional businesses in China reinvented themselves during COVID-19 and what we can learn from their successes was a really great hit. I think it actually got the greatest number of listeners to that in one week. It was the most popular episode. So with information on COVID-19 going on everywhere, I've been digging a lot deeper into the deeper problems the pandemic is causing and will cause in the future. So in this podcast, I'm always highly optimistic and truly believe that where there are challenges, there are also opportunities. So in this podcast, I want to highlight all the different opportunities right now for you to go out and build and create for those that are experiencing problems and go out and build the solutions to these problems. So today I'm bringing you a whole bunch of reasons and problems of why we are in so much trouble today. These include a lot of repercussions of COVID-19 and what is to be expected in the months, if not years to come. In some of these areas, I'll also offer what I think are opportunities and if I can find any companies that are already solving for these problems. I think this will also help you better understand why we find ourselves in this trouble today, specifically with COVID-19, worse than any other pandemic in history, but also motivate you to go out there and think, wow, like this is all figure outable. So some areas that I'll touch on is population growth, especially in cities, the rise of the global middle class, which brings about mobility and travel and interconnectivity, the phenomenon of global value chains, anti-globalization tendencies, especially as we manifested um, in case of the trade wars going on, problems of governance regarding political regimes and failed states, the phenomenon of fake news attitudes such as hubris and denial and anti-science attitudes as well. Firstly, fun fact on epidemics and pandemics, I'm sure some of you may already know, but the difference between the two has to do with the geographical scope of the problem. The prefix epi means near in Greek and the prefix pan means everything or everywhere. Hence the difference between an epidemic, which is a localized outbreak of disease in a pandemic, which is an outbreak of disease in multiple locations, or perhaps even an entire country, continent, or the entire world itself. Epidemics are very common. Between the years 2011 and 2017, we've had in the world 1307 epidemics. Pandemics, though, are very rare. They don't happen as frequently. The most famous ones are, of course, the Black Death from the 1300s, the so-called Spanish Flu or influenza, to not tie it to Spain, in 1918 and 1919, and the HIV-AIDS pandemic that started in the early 1980s why do we think that this pandemic will have even worse much more devastating consequences so let's start with the growth of cities by 2030 we're expected to have three times the number of cities over 10 million people as we did in 2014. cities are growing very fast they grow by 1.5 million people each week that includes both people born in the cities each week as well as the people who are migrating from rural areas Cities occupy only 1% of the land, but they are home to 55% of the population. By the year 2030, that proportion will grow to about 65%. Cities also account for about 80% of carbon emissions. That's an irrelevant fact, but I thought I would add that in there. This is important because historically, most epidemics and pandemics have grown exponentially in urban areas. This is why... COVID one of the reasons that COVID-19 has managed to spread so fast. So I saw Twitter the other day, I saw on Twitter the other day that someone I forgot who tweeted that COVID-19 affects the urban old, but the rural young. After the 2008 financial crisis in the US, there were 500,000 people who never enter the workforce again. There is a chance that many young people who are laid off or cannot find jobs will increase the number of drug addictions, crime, and more stress on the government systems. There are a lot of opportunities for programs and companies to help these people. Go through these rough times. Furthermore, in rural areas there's less access to healthcare and broadband internet. This could be similar to remote areas pretty much anywhere in the world. It's hard to get the right information there. It's hard to access telehealth. It's impossible to work remote because the internet is just not good, even if they had the jobs to be able to work remote. It also means that e-learning when schools are out there cannot be any learning really happening online. Low bandwidth products should really be considered here. Kenya based eLimu or Le- eLimu is splitting its products into three smaller bite sized apps that users can download without memory constraints posed by their devices. South Africa's ULessons currently streaming subscription service has video lessons compressed to conserve data. It's actually seven to 10 megabytes per video. The original goal of working around data costs and affordability still stands with a lot of these companies abroad. And this is something that we should learn from in order to serve our rural areas. People in rural areas require completely different products and services. And it's important to note that they are still 45% of the total population, even in developed countries in a mass untapped market in urban areas it's the speed of spread that is concerning with everyone congregated in one area think of the slums around the world and the tight quarters that people live in including refugee camps and pretty much i think it was four billion people in the world don't have access to the internet or a smartphone yet and don't have addresses i don't think it was a smartphone it was four billion people in the world don't have an address so those are really really tight quarters living in one space, shared spaces, that is where disease is really able to spread. So China, what we've seen is they're using robots to disinfect hospitals and deliver medical supplies. In Singapore, government data has enabled detailed mapping of the outbreak. And in South Korea, authorities are tracking potential carriers using cell phone satellite technology, disinfecting drones, talking robots, artificial intelligence that can scan thousands of medical images in a flash. While data protection laws in Europe are driven by the intrinsic right to privacy, many Asian countries have more pragmatic legislation, even though there are robust compliance frameworks to prevent abuse of data. Obviously, we don't know that for sure, but what's even worse is that in other Southeast Asian countries that are less developed, they're using personal data without protecting people's privacy. Vietnam is tracking locals and foreigners through mobile apps, while Thai immigration authorities are using location data of those arriving in the country, which amounts to mass surveillance and a serious risk to privacy. In Europe, the GDPR, the general data protection regulation requires anyone seeking someone's data to obtain their consent. So mass tracking of people's movements and contacts using smartphone location data violates this. So it cannot possibly happen in Europe. However, even though the US and Europe value this a lot, there. Are still a lot of innovations going on in this area. Apple and Google just launched a coronavirus tracker on Friday last week using Bluetooth to pick up signals of nearby phones. And if someone is diagnosed with coronavirus by entering that they tested positive in a public health app, all other phones that their phone signals picked up will be notified to get tested. This is a, this is. Fairly private, because unlike GPS data, location is not picked up via Bluetooth. The system also takes a number of steps to prevent people from being identified even after they've shared their data. So while the app regularly sends information out over Bluetooth, it broadcasts an anonymous key rather than a static identity, and those keys cycle every 15 minutes to preserve privacy. Even once a person shares that they've been infected, the app will only share the keys from the specific period in which they were contagious. So would love to hear your thoughts on other companies working to combat urban spread of pandemics, because this is something that we should be seeing in all the cities that we are living in. The second topic of why we are in trouble right now is middle class consumption. When it comes to middle class consumption, there is an enormous growth in purchasing power of the middle class in emerging markets, especially. While today the EU and the US are still the largest consumer markets in the world for middle class, by 2030, Asian markets will be even bigger. Greater consumption requires greater trade, foreign investment, tourism, and travel, and so many startups in these hubs are built off of that in order to serve the ever-growing consumption, uh, consumer spending of these more developing areas. They are just starting to feel the richer environment and have this kind of spending power. So this is likely where we learn about a bunch of the innovations in the news, right? So they are consumer facing. There's no need for me to touch on how the virus has spread through trade and travel and meetings around the world. It has also really hurt the aviation industry. But there's a lot of new technologies that have now come out to serve this growing middle class's consumption demands. They include drone delivery, touchless technologies. So, for example, Kohler, the 146 year old maker of kitchen and bathroom fixtures, is reporting a surge in sales of touchless faucets and toilets to residential customers. Sales of the company's intelligent Toilets, which are equipped with bidets and toilet seats that open and close automatically, increase eightfold during the first two weeks of March compared to the same period a year earlier. In Australia, 90% of retail transactions of less than $25 are completed through contactless transactions, such as a tap to pay credit cards or mobile devices. We have this in Canada as well. In contrast, just 2% of in-store transactions in the U.S. were contactless in the last year. But even contactless payments in the U.S. are often contactless in name only. Transactions initiated by a tap with a credit card or the wave of a phone often require customers to punch in a pin or sign a screen or a paper receipt to complete the sale as a protection against fraud. I don't really know how that protects against fraud, I think It's just something that we grew up with. In contrast, it is routine for consumers in China and the rest of Asia to pay via apps such as WeChat and Alipay that don't force patrons to touch a shared surface. So I think that many countries will catch up, like the U.S., not only on virtual digitalization like virtual meetings, e-learning, but also a lot of online to offline like e-commerce and using your phone to open a door. The third point I have on why the world is hurting so bad from a pandemic more now than ever is the tight-knit global value chain. Think of the global value chain of any product right now. Take the iPhone, for example. As you know, this is a product that is assembled in China. But native components are produced in many different countries including Japan, Germany, and South Korea and of course knowledge comes from the US. Final value of this phone is when it leaves China but the value added in each country depends on the origin of the components. When everything goes well they're very efficient. It's global efficiency and we're all able, all factories, all companies are able to deliver very cheap products to all of us. But if something unexpected happens, then there is a big problem. Take, for example, the 2011 Japanese earthquake and tsunami. It brought many factories to a standstill just within Japan. And actually, that had ripple effects throughout the entire global economy. Now, this was because many of those factories were making components or parts that were needed at other factories around the world. Take biopharma also for as an example, which, by the way, is very relevant in the context of coronavirus today. Once again what we see is that the manufacturing, well first the research and development and then the manufacturing of biopharmaceutical products is also an integrated global network. The global system nowadays is so much more tightly coupled than ever Because of trade integration, because of portfolio and direct investments coming from certain countries to specific other hubs because of cross-border banking assets and because of global value chains and travel of millions and millions of people moving around the world. This means that there are fewer degrees of freedom. There are no buffers, no backups. Everything is picked to be the most efficient already. This also means that a disturbance somewhere in the system diffuses very rapidly across the world, which is exactly what we have witnessed with the coronavirus. And that's why we can't get the ventilators and the PPEs and the masks that we need. Because at first, China was not able to supply because they were dealing with COVID themselves. And now we have a very high demand. They're trying to catch up across every other consumer good, there's a lower demand now and the production is picking up. So it's the supply and demand chain that really needs to match up. And it was at its perfect efficiency before. So our economy works as a unit in real time on a planetary scale. That is what we mean by having a global economy. But when we think of the problems we see on the news these days of producing what we need in country and having enough medical staff, we can think of countries during war. We've done it before during war times. During World War II, the U.S. built 2,710 ships and some were built within 24 days. By the end of World War II, the U.S. also had a quarter of a million pilot graduates. So we can build and train troops. This gives huge opportunities that a lot of companies are already taking advantage of getting their factories to start producing PPE and ventilators from giant companies like Tesla making ventilators to one of my friends who owns a women's tights company that's only about two years old. She's making masks from the factory that she uses to make women's tights. There are a lot of consultants right now coordinating purchases of medical equipment on behalf of governments and private hospitals. So use your network and do what you can. There's a lot of B2B opportunities in this area right now. The fourth piece is this ongoing trade war between the US and China trade wars have essentially created a lot of resentment across countries in the world and i think we are witnessing right now a lack of coordination amongst governments in part because they've been fighting each other very strongly over the last two years or so over trade issues there is a return of protectionism how tariffs as a percentage of total american imports increased over the last few couple of years or so from historically low levels Now, of course, we're not yet at the levels we saw 50 to 100 years ago, but the impact of these trade wars has been quite significant. For example, the U.S. and China have been putting very large tariffs on each other, and what that essentially means is the amount of trade flowing between the two countries has come down. The consequences of that are, number one, now we find it harder, for example, in the U.S. to produce ventilators and respirators or other kinds of healthcare equipment because companies can't access the Chinese producers easily, in part, of course, because of the effects of the pandemic over there, but also due to the trade war. Number two, the second thing, as I noted earlier, is that there's a lot of suspicions now between the governments of U.S. and China and then their separate teams of countries in different areas of the world that have aligned themselves with one of the two, mutual suspicions, and this makes collaboration really difficult. What is it that companies do when we have trade wars or when, or for another reason like a pandemic trade gets interrupted? they try to diversify their sources of supply. So initially, after the trade war started, companies responded to tensions by diversifying their sources of supply to countries like Taiwan or Mexico within the EU. Vietnam was a really, really big hub. Japan, Korea, and Canada. This will continue offering many businesses to be the middleman to facilitate these trades. Yet again, to be the kind of the consultant allowing multicultural, cross cross-border work right so new supply chains will be formed this means that new technologies that can thrive in tracking shipments data organization receiving or for the shipping ports can thrive the fifth piece of why we're in trouble and a problem that we're facing right now is poor governance and failed states We're in a period where there's a lot of stable democracies and dictatorships are declining quickly. But there's a third group of countries here, inocracies. Inocracies are countries that in theory are democracies, but in practice there's an individual or a group of individuals that always wins the elections and they perpetuate themselves in power. So you can think about the countries that fall under this category. This is a major governance issue, but an even more consequential governance issue in the world right now with direct implications for the control of this pandemic is the problem of failed states. So failed states are those in which there is an anarchy, lawlessness, there's chaos. There's no centralized government authority. We've learned from the Chinese and from the Korean examples that it is very important that the government acts quickly and swiftly because of COVID spread so fast. We are also learning from the European examples that the lack of that decisive governmental intervention is a problem. Now imagine if the pandemic becomes prevalent where levels of state failure are high. These governments lack the appropriate structures to cope with a major crisis such as this because they are failed states and they're going to find it really, really hard to stop the spreading. And in terms of these inocracies, we're seeing that like, honestly, some of this might lead to revolution. So not, Quite sure exactly what opportunities this opens up other than that for many health organizations and nonprofits to go to the rescue and to be able to provide that healthcare infrastructure where it lacks. But that also means that these organizations need tools of support to deal in very sensitive areas. These areas usually lack basic tools and facilities. Finally, let's talk about the human failings that are making this pandemic much, much harder to deal with. First, we have conspiracy theories out there. In The Guardian, Washington Post, and other major news outlets, there are stories referring to how people are using social media and other ways of disseminating information to model the situation to essentially convey fake news about the coronavirus. Well, fake news is a pre-existing trend. In 2016, studies show that two-thirds of Americans were confused about fake news stories, therefore amplifying the effect on social media because they didn't know any better. The majority of Americans, however, are confident or at the time were confident that they could deal with fake news, that they could recognize them. Facebook, TikTok, Twitter are all tackling this, but this leaves opportunity for AI companies and other software companies to help them. This isn't just happening in the U.S. either. Google recently gave $6.5 million in funding to the Nigerian arm of Africa Check, a South African fact checking startup that started in 2012. Britain's Queen Elizabeth has been affected by with COVID-19, at least that's the fake news that on Saturday, March 28th, went viral on Twitter. Users with thousands of followers retweeted the news. Many didn't even care to check if the story was verified, neither did they care that not a single UK publication wrote about it. But that's just one example of how vulnerable people in the world are. And this example is actually just within Nigeria. So it's not just Nigerians that are vulnerable. We all are to so these online gimmicks. In Uganda, rumors claim that imported secondhand clothes could spread the disease. Other fake news that made the round said that Black people are immune to the disease and that the African climate is too harsh for the disease to survive. On WhatsApp, every day people have medical experts sharing coronavirus cures like mixing garlic and honey. Prices for lemon and garlic have increased in Ethiopia as well. A typical scam tries to convince people to buy coronavirus-related medical products. Victims are then asked to pay via bank transfer. Other scams impersonate the government. One example is a fake donations request letter from the Federal Ministry of Finance. It took advantage of the fact that recently a number of affluent individuals and companies have announced donations to Nigeria's efforts to control the virus. So that's what Africa Check is trying to deal with and why Google sponsored them. Finally, we have another human feeling, which is denial, but denial is actually something that is not just coming from the highest spheres of government, it is also deeply ingrained in the population. So consider the widespread anti-science attitudes. So theory of evolution is not taught according to the Scientific American magazine in many schools in the US, This anti-science attitude in the government and also among the population, at least in certain parts of the U.S., is very dangerous. In order to stop this pandemic, we will need to listen to experts. And with that, people need to believe in the experts that they're listening to. There's a reason why many governments and education platforms are actually using platforms popular with children and with the population already for educational purposes so the platforms themselves were not used for educational purposes but only for entertainment. In, in the last episodes, I touched on Billy Billy, a live streaming platform, usually for memes, humor, and cartoons, but now it's used by companies to target teens, even for learning purposes, such as like high school biology classes are being streamed there. I believe Billy Billy partnered with the Shanghai, um, education government in order to manage most of the classes actually live streamed there where they can target thousands and thousands of students. So how else can we get accurate information out there is a big problem and a big opportunity that someone can go out and solve. Now lastly, let's not forget about the most vulnerable people that are dealing with these problems. We can discuss whether people of a certain age of pre-existing medical conditions are more or less vulnerable to the disease, but there's another dimension to vulnerability here. I predict that this pandemic will hurt the working poor and the lower middle class the most. Their jobs cannot be performed remote. Also, they have lower levels of savings and some may not have access to healthcare. In some, a recession will affect them to a much greater extent than other groups. Let's also not forget about the homeless. They will also be very much impacted, right? All around the world, mayors are making hotel rooms available to the homeless. Phone donations around the city are to give to the homeless to allow them to be notified if they tested positive back when tests took several days was really really important as well just remember that the government needs to relieve people they need to stimulate the economies. if you are helping the most vulnerable who cannot pay themselves you're helping small businesses that are bankrupt or building infrastructure to help people get internet i predict there's going to be a lot more subsidies and funding around and the government can be your customer there are different ways to build a business and vc fast fast growth, affluent customers are not the only way. In times like these, we need to look even more to what's happening around the world. The most vulnerable people are the same people no matter where they reside. Whether you are a working class poor in China and Egypt or in the US, you experience more of the same problems than with a wealthy American living in New York City versus the rural working class. More than ever, there are market gaps. There are things that you and I can do, whether it's for charity. Like right now, my mom is actually using Kaluan that Owen and I built to teach Chinese traditional dance to a community of over 500 Asian Canadian women based in Ottawa online and donating all the proceeds to the food bank. If you have any ideas, I'd love to brainstorm with you and provide you with the resources that I have access to, which I'm happy to help in any way that I can with my network of entrepreneurs, marketers, investors, etc. Please reach out or join my community, Get World Savvy on Facebook, as many of them are hanging out in the group as well. I am so grateful that there are others in the world, you, my listeners, who believe in seeing opportunity when there are challenges as well. So with that, thank you guys so much for listening. See you in the next episode.